Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch Produce Market and Garden Center, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. Now, we are normally a call-in show, Uh, And we look forward to answering your gardening questions on the air. Uh, But today we're coming to you uh, by tape. And so don't try to call in, I guess. Just sit back and and enjoy. I hope you enjoy. Uh, We're going to be covering a a unique kind of topic today, and that is a whole show just talking about common gardening myths and perhaps a few of the mistakes we make uh, as we garden and ways to avoid that. So if you have a Pinterest account or uh, one of the other social media accounts. Uh, If you talk to your neighbor across the fence, uh, you have probably encountered things that are told as truth that aren't true. And our goal with, with AgriLife Extension and, and the, whole, you know, the whole idea of a university system is that uh, we're searching for research-based information that is at least applicable in the context that uh, it is given. And so uh, I guess when you, uh, when you consider all of the advice out there for gardeners, I, I've said before that I think next to uh, perhaps a horticulturist, uh, university-trained horticulturist, uh, perhaps a doctor uh, may even have it a little bit worse in constantly hearing things that absolutely are not medically true. Uh, you know, patients that are wanting to try some new substance or herb or whatever uh, to treat something. And, and I know that's got to be frustrating. And it it's uh, something that I deal with, too. And, and it's kind of like everybody's an expert on gardening if they garden. And so you run into a lot of these things. And I'm going to go through a few of them today. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you about the science behind it and uh, give you some of the reasons why it's not true. Or in, in the case of some of these myths, it may be true under certain conditions, but not true under all, uh, but they're often applied to all. And that's one of the things that happens. You know, they say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And uh, as we get a hold of a little bit of a fact somewhere, uh, and then we try to apply it in places where it, uh, it just doesn't hold water, uh, that can kind of get us into trouble. So let's start off and talk about uh, some common gardening myths. You know, gardeners love creative solutions. They love, we love novel techniques, uh, home remedies, and, and certainly uh, natural approaches to common gardening problems are, are very popular in and of the fact that they are natural. 
Uh, I can certainly understand uh, the sentiment. I've spent many years uh, in my career researching and testing both conventional gardening wisdom and the endless parade of the latest thing. And boy, are we ever having the latest thing. And some of these latest things turn out to be something that lasts, that, that, that is good, and others just are a passing fad that goes by. So how do you, how does a gardener deal with all the claims and, and whatnot? Uh, how do you weed your way through it, if you will, and uh, decide what's true? You know, whether something is a long-held misbelief or just a novel idea somebody cooked up with a dash of facts and sprinkled with a little that makes sense on top, myths can be quite compelling. Uh, most garden myths are, are based on a truth that's been misapplied or stretched uh, beyond a legitimate application. Some, some I think, probably were not even based on any truth to begin with, but uh, they have caught on. Uh, so I want to talk about a few of the myths that I've encountered and along the way, and some that I hear quite often. And you may have heard this first one from me, but that is that a layer of gravel in the bottom of a container will improve the drainage. And this one just won't go away, perhaps because it makes sense that water flows more freely through gravel than it does through soil. So placing gravel or another version of it is styrofoam peanuts, another version is broken pot shards in the bottom of your container, it's not a good idea for at least two reasons. Number one, container plants have a, a confined root system just because they're in a container. Uh, pretty much any plant you have growing in a container uh, its root system is extremely confined compared to what it would be out in the yard, in nature, if you will. Uh, they, uh, you take a little plant, uh, its roots are going to reach out way beyond the branch spread, uh, many, in all directions. And in a container, we have them all wrapped up in a little tiny space. So in our Texas summer heat, which we've been experiencing uh, like never before, it seems, uh, the roots pump that pot dry very rapidly. So let's say you have a tomato plant and it's, oh, three or four feet tall only. Uh, and it's in a five-gallon container. Well, it doesn't take even a day in the sun for that container to go completely dry. So if you add gravel or pot shards or peanuts or whatever to the bottom of the container and then start with the soil, what you've just done is reduce the volume of soil in the container. So it's going to be even more drought prone. Also, you're reducing the volume of soil where roots can inhabit and draw nutrients from. So uh, the, those soil particles or the organic matter particles in a potting soil, the those particular uh, sites are where a lot of the nutrients are going to come from unless you're just uh, watering them with a soluble solution every day at a very low, low, low rate. Uh, and so it, it, it just doesn't make sense from that regard. The second reason is the, is the way water moves in the soil. Water is, is pulled by a finer textured material more than a coarse textured material. Uh, in a container, the water moves down through the soil and runs out the drainage hole as it becomes so waterlogged at the base that gravity literally pulls it out of the container through the hole in the bottom of the container. Uh, as water fills the space between soil particles, when above that area there's more water pushing down on it, the weight of it uh, pushing down, uh, some of the water at the bottom will drain out. But there'll always be a layer of saturated soil at the bottom of that soil profile. 
uh, soil that is able to hold that water, but it not so much water that it literally drips out. So when you put gravel in the bottom of a container, water literally has to drip out of the soil by, from it, that bottom layer being oversaturated to move into the gravel. Gravel doesn't pull water out of the soil. It doesn't make that soil drain better. The soil is going to drain like the soil drains. Uh, the gravel below is a place for the water to go. So if you have a container with good uh, holes for allowing for drainage, gravity is going to take the excess out. And so that's kind of how that works. So uh, it, it just, uh, it does, that old myth dies slowly because it makes a little bit of sense. But, but when you understand the physics of how water moves, all you're doing when you put something in the bottom of a container for drainage, all you're doing is you're reducing the volume of, of soil that the plant roots can grow in. And here in our area, it is so hot for so long, and the nights are even hot, that um, we need more soil volume rather than less. A five-gallon container for a tomato, unless it's just a really small dwarf variety, uh, is not enough. You need 10 gallons or even more. It would we'd even be happier with more than that. But uh, that's, that's that myth. Uh, the next myth I want to talk about is Epsom salts. Uh, this one, again, is based on truth. Truth. Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate, and plants need magnesium. Uh, most soils are not deficient in magnesium, but they can be, especially as you get over in the eastern third of the state and some of the more acidic sands where it rains a lot. We often find that magnesium can be a little bit deficient as a common rule over there. Uh, but, you know, you and your neighbor's yard, w one of you may need magnesium and the next one may not. And so it, it, we don't make the assumption that all plants need magnesium or all soils are deficient in magnesium. So if a tomato plant or any plant you have is deficient in magnesium, Epsom salt would be one way to provide it. Now, there are fertilizers uh, that are very reasonably priced uh, that uh, can provide magnesium as well. But you could dissolve some Epsom salt in water and with a drench help fix that problem. Uh, but really what you need to do is do a soil test and find out is your soil low or high in magnesium? Um, magnesium in excess, like a lot of minerals in excess, can cause problems, and certainly a deficiency causes problems. One of the signs of magnesium deficiency in a broadleaf plant is when you look at the leaf, it's almost like there's a green Christmas tree in the center of an otherwise yellowing leaf. Uh, so think of the veins, the main vein in the middle and the side veins going out. Uh, the, the green kind of stays there, but it's the peripheral areas that start to turn yellow first. Uh, and so that would, be, that would be an example of magnesium deficiency. But again, do a soil test. Now, if you had a plant and you thought that might be what's wrong and you took a little Epsom salt, mixed some in, in a gallon of water and kind of drenched it over the plant, uh, and then watched how it reacted, and if it, it started getting better, that might be a sign that, yep, magnesium is what we need. But there's, there's fertilizers out there. One's called langbanite. Uh, another name for them is KMAG or sulpomag uh, that uh, contain potassium, magnesium, and sulfate, and they, they are a good option for fixing that. But don't buy into the thing that every time you plant a tomato, it needs some Epsom salt. That is not true. Another myth, uh, add a handful of bone meal to the planting hole before you plant roses and bulbs. 
Now, bone meal is a, is a very slowly available source of phosphorus. Depending on how it was treated, there are certain ways that they can treat bone meal uh, to make the phosphorus more available uh, than less. But like if you just buried a bunch of bones in your pot, uh, essentially, I would just say essentially no phosphorus is going to be available to those plants. The amount is insignificant. Uh, so plants need phosphorus, but as with magnesium, a soil test is the way you find out if more should be added. Because when you have too much phosphorus and you combine that with high pH soils, which we have in a lot of our area here, uh, high pH and a clay soil that holds a lot of nutrient, uh, you often will have iron deficiency uh, with that combination. Even though there's iron in your soil, it's not available. So again, thinking, well, I'm planting a bulb or a rosebush, I need to add bone meal. Is That assumption is, is not right. Don't do that. If you need it, a soil test will tell you. And there are better forms of phosphorus than just bone meal. Now, again, if it's prepared to make it a little more uh, available by the manufacturer, uh, that bone meal's fine. Uh, there are more uh, rapidly available types of phosphorus. Now, the one part of that myth that it has, I would say, some truth in it is uh, phosphorus ties up in the soil very readily. So if you put bone meal out or any phosphorus source and you blend it all through the soil volume, uh, you've got a lot more of the surface area of that phosphorus supply that is available to get taken up and tied up uh, in the soil. When you put a handful under there, that's a concentrated area, and roots are going to be able to go to that area and get what they need uh, in phosphorus. It doesn't mean every time you phosphorus fertilize, you need to do that. Uh, sometimes uh, in agriculture and, and commercial horticulture uh, fields, they will band phosphorus. They'll they'll put a, a little trench with phosphorus in it alongside the plant for that same reason of concentrating it in one spot to make it more available uh, compared to mixing it up. Another myth, and boy, this is a this is maybe this should have been number one. Applying pruning paint to tree wounds helps prevent decay and promote healing. Logic again would suggest that. I've cut off a tree limb. Now I've got this dead interior wood. Think of it as a two by four in there that is just exposed to the elements and will begin to rot. So if I paint it like your house, uh, when you paint the wood, it doesn't decay as fast as if you left it unpainted. And that that is the reason the myth has survived. Well, it's been over 30 years ago now, I guess, that Dr. Alex Shigo uh, disproved the painting wound myth, and it's been supported by a lot of research since. Uh, through, he did extensive studies about how a tree responds to pruning and natural wounds, and uh, painting doesn't really promote healing or prevent decay. In fact, the opposite uh, is true. When you coat the wood, you limit the oxygen that, especially if you coat the whole wound, I'm sorry, coating the living tissues around the wound uh, helps limit the needed oxygen to get to those callous tissues that are forming that begin the process of closing over the wound. So coatings also trap moisture behind them, and this would be that dead interior wood. Uh, and by holding the moisture behind them and not letting that wood dry out rapidly after a rain, uh, it exacerbates that wood rot problem in those areas. And um, so the exception to the thing of don't paint your wounds, don't paint your wounds, it 
leave them alone. Let me just, this is an aside, but the, the sooner you recognize the need to remove a branch, the smaller the wound will be. If you wait three years to remove that branch, now you've got a bigger wound. So the number one thing you can do to prevent interior decay is to learn how a plant should be pruned and make those decisions earlier. If you have to get a chainsaw, that's an admission of guilt. Okay, When you bring a chainsaw out to a tree, what you're saying is, I or maybe the former owner of the property, if you've purchased it re fairly recently, should have pruned this branch a long time ago. And now, here I'm having to get a chainsaw out to prune it. Those large wounds are, are many cases, they're, they're never going to close over if they're large enough. The tree is old enough and, and growing slowly. Uh, but uh, as far as painting, no. Now, so if you, if you live in an area where oak wilt is, pre is present and active uh, and you're pruning oak trees, applying some sort of a sealant immediately after making the cut, it blocks out the beetles that can spread the oak wilt fungus. Uh, the uh, red oaks typically form little mats that produce spores and a beetle is attracted to that and they feed on that and then you prune a tree and, and that smell of that fresh wound, if I can use the word smell in describing an insect, uh, that smell of that fresh wound attracts them there and they feed on your wound and, and the oak wilt moves in. Oak wilt can also move in uh, through connected roots underground, but it's the pruning thing we're talking about today. So. Um, if you live where oak wilt is present, you do paint, but it's not to make it heal. It's to absolutely block that beetle out because oak wilt is it's a game ender. Uh, you know, we think bad pruning is a problem, and it is, but when you get oak wilt, it, it's kind of a game ender in most cases. Uh, and so uh, we don't have an active oak wilt center that I'm aware of here. I know we have had it pop up in the past from time to time. Uh, but it, it's not like I just expect it. If you've got an oak tree in Bryan College Station, I expect that you probably got oak wilt nearby. I expect that you don't, in fact. So it's not a big deal here. Uh, but if you go over to the central Texas where it is a big deal, uh, then you would want definitely uh, to use a pruning paint for that reason. Another myth, if a pesticide is organic, it is safe. All right. Calm down. Listen to listen to my reasoning here. Uh, but when I, uh, while I seldom use pesticides, uh, when I do, uh, I usually use something natural in origin. Uh, so uh, it, I just find that uh, the less toxic something may be, uh, then the better it is. And but what you find is that safe uh, um, does not automatically attach to natural and dangerous does not automatically attach to synthetic. We have some super low tox synthetics and we there are a few natural products that, that have either in this day and time, most of the more toxic organic products or natural products are gone off the market. Uh, things like rotenone, um, sabadilla, probably to think of some more, uh, but those are not on the, oh, nicotine sulfate, my gosh, the most toxic of all the pesticides we would have used uh, in the past uh, in our homes, home, not commercial. Uh, those are gone. And so acute toxicity to people is not such a deal with organics, but organics have side effects that you don't intend. Insecticidal soap kills uh, spider mites and it kills aphids, but it also can kill lady beetle larvae, lacewing larvae, uh, and if if um, uh, 
Uh, and there's some other ways where it can affect uh, beneficial insects negatively. Another thing insecticidal soap can do is dissolve some of the outer waxy cuticle on leaves, the, the surface that helps protect the leaf. Uh, the the uh, outer waxy surface being uh, treated to repeated soap sprays, especially that are mixed too strong. You know how we are. If a teaspoon's good, a tablespoon's better, right? Well, no. Uh, but when you start doing that, even even you're even affecting the plant negatively. And I believe some studies, I believe it's by AgriLife, down in the valley of Texas, this was years ago, uh, were looking at after X number of sprays with soap, they were seeing a reduction in yield. Uh, and I believe it was melons that was being studied at the time. But anyway, uh, so pesticides are made to kill living things and or to disrupt their, their functioning. Uh, they're produced naturally in plant or synthetically in a lab. It's the same thing. That's what they're made for. And it's generally the case that more toxic organic products no, are no longer with us, uh, which is also true, by the way, of most toxic, m the more toxic synthetics that we used to have. Um, and number two, natural products tend to break down faster in the environment. When you spray BT about uh, second day or certainly the third, it is no longer killing caterpillars for you. It's done. It's broken down. If you, sp if you sprayed seven, uh, seven dust or seven liquid, you, it would be there probably a week later still killing ins insects. And so the natural products do break down faster. Uh, and there are reasons that you may want to use them, but don't assume if it's natural, it's safe. If it's synthetic, it's poisonous because it's not just the toxicity to people in terms of acute exposure, but it's also the effects on plants and on beneficial insects and using them indiscriminately. If you're an organic gardener, Using organic products indiscriminately is going against the very reason that you decided to be an organic gardener. So I will just leave that one at that. Uh, here's another one. This is actually fairly true in our area, but in much of the state it's not true. And that is that gypsum will break up and improve a clay soil. Uh, you may have seen a package uh, of gypsum and it was on the on the package it showed a bunch of little hose chopping up the soil you know to give the consumer the idea that oh this will this will break up my clay and make it more more uh, useful for growing plants um, gypsum is calcium sulfate okay now sodium can really mess with the structure of a clay soil causing it not to drain well and our water is high in sodium and we overwater our lawns and landscapes. So when you put all that together, lots of sodium, high pH, clay soil, we, we end up with a soil that doesn't drain well. And uh, also it moves the pH up even higher. So gypsum can be put out, calcium sulfate, to, uh, the way I'll put it is, knock the sodium off the soil particles so that it can be leached away out of the root zone or out, you know, out of the area uh, that we're wanting to grow our plants and uh, help improve that soil structure, which improves its internal drainage, which is what we would love to do when we have a clay soil that's so tight and poorly drained um, that uh, we're not getting good results. Now, so gypsum can help in that. But a lot of the state doesn't have that problem. And so if you just have clay and it's not a sodium issue and you put gypsum on it, uh, 
just to put gypsum on it, it's not going to make your clay all nice and friable and all better and everything like that. So, and it is calcium sulfate. It's interesting, calcium sulfate. So, uh, calcium is higher pH, sulfate moves things a little lower. So, there we've got, you know, kind of a combination, somewhat neutral in a sense in terms of its effect on pH. All right, uh, another one. Foliar feeding is great way to fertilize plants. Now, before I answer this one, this is going to be a little longer one, uh, but you're listening to Garden Success, and we're normally a call-in show, so I uh, just want to remind you not to try to call in today. I'm coming to you from tape, and our topic today is is gardening myths, and I'm just kind of going through, uh, chopping away at a lot of common gardening myths, and if we were to try to cover them all, it would take about a year of garden success shows to do, and we probably would then find that more had been created that we need to now go after, but I hope this is interesting, and I, and I hope uh, as you visit with people, you uh, will kind of share some of these uh, ideas to help people have success. You know, it's fun to have all the kinds of crazy home remedies and stuff like that that people want to do. Uh, I remember a, a, many, a number of years ago, there was a guy, I won't use his name, but uh, he had recommendations for using beer on your lawn. And, and, you know, people eat that stuff up. I mean, it's just like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to spray beer on my lawn. Well, number one, I can think of a better use of beer, uh, first of all. But a lot of the claims and stuff that were made about it were based on a little truth that essentially amounted to not really helping, other than being something that the neighbors also can talk to you about when you're out there spraying your six-pack on the lawn. All right, so today we're next we're talking about foliar feeding. Foliar feeding is a great way to fertilize plants. That's the myth. It is not. Uh, plants are designed to primarily take up their nutrients through their roots. So species differ in their ability to absorb nutrients through the leaves. Not all plants are the same. Uh, most foliar absorption takes place through little openings that are primarily on the bottom of the leaves. Some occur on the top, but mostly on the bottom, called stomates. Stomates open and close like a doorway, allowing the, the gases in the leaf to escape. That's how plants, the, one of the main ways plants release water, uh, excess water out of their leaves. It is also the way that a plant takes in carbon dioxide so that it can fuel the factories that produce carbohydrates for the plant. Uh, it's also a way where in the evenings they can they typically are, are opening up uh, and oxygen can also get in uh, that way and there are some processes in plants that do need oxygen too. Only about 15 to 20 percent of the nutrients sprayed onto the leaf that stick on the leaf move into the plant and it makes foliar feeding a very inefficient way to fertilize plants in general. Now it can be useful for uh, micronutrient um, uh, supplementation because when you think about something like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, the big three, the numbers on the fertilizer bag, uh, those are needed in such large amounts in plants that you could never get enough in the plant through the leaves. Uh, it's, they need to be taken up by the roots, the way a plant is supposed to work, by the way. Uh, but micronutrients are needed in little tiny amounts. So let's say you had iron deficiency. It doesn't take much iron to make a plant happy. That, you know, there are many other micronutrients. Uh, pecan trees are often 
deficient in zinc in high pH soil. Zinc has trouble getting into the tree uh, and doing its thing. So pecan growers, commercial pecan growers, will, will sometimes use a zinc product to spray the foliage in order to supplement those leaves so that they don't stay small, tiny, mouse-eared leaves, but they actually grow into a normal pecan leaf size. And that's a foliar application using the right products, by the way. Uh, not just any zinc works like that equally well. Uh, but that, that would be an example of a micronutrient uh, foliar feeding that would apply. But those are few and far between. The long-term solutions, especially for home gardeners, is to correct the problem in the soil. If you have a lack of a nutrient in the soil, then it's easy to build your soil with proper fertilization. And depending on the nutrient, it may be done different ways. Uh, another use for foliar application that can be helpful is to diagnose a nutrient deficiency. So let's say you had a plant that was exhibiting and you thought it was an iron deficiency or a zinc deficiency or something like that. You could foliar apply to some of the leaves and then watch and, and see how how they respond, and if you get a good response, then that's that's a good test that that's probably what the problem was. Uh, foliar applications are best done in the cool of the morning when absorption into the leaf is greatest due to the stomates being open, the cool of the morning. Uh, you want to avoid in hot weather. Uh, you definitely want to follow mixing instructions because you can damage leaves by not mixing properly. And remember that not all forms of nutrients absorb as readily in the leaf. So you want to seek help in finding the best form of the nutrient you wish to apply. But again, bottom line, foliar feeding is a good way to fertilize plants. No, it's not. Unless, in certain cases, there is a micronutrient deficiency and you have to bypass the roots because that's the problem, the soil and the, and the, the uh, pH and stuff in the soil. All right, here's another one. If you water in the heat of the day, the sun focuses through those droplets on the leaf and will burn the plants. Now, having burned my share of ants with a magnifying glass as a child, I can understand the logic of the myth. You know, you get this this uh, raindrop or water drop on the leaf, and the sun refracts through it, and, you know, it's just like a, uh, let's see, a convex, I guess, is a magnifying, not concave, but a con I believe it's convex magnifying glass lens. Uh, yeah, you send the sun through that, and it can burn stuff, but it just ain't so. If that were true, think about this. Every rainstorm followed by sunshine would leave the foliage in our gardens and landscapes peppered with burn marks. Everywhere there was a drop, you could get a burn mark. It just doesn't work like that. The principle is there, and that's why myths survive, but it's not true. Now, we have other reasons not to... Uh, you know, spray water on the foliage of our plant. It's an inefficient way to water. It is a way that promotes diseases. The longer you keep foliage wet, the more disease problems you're likely to have. But don't worry about the sun. All right, another one. House plants purify the air in your home and add oxygen. I bet I got your attention with that one because we have heard that and heard that and heard that, and you may have even heard NASA said so. And if NASA says something, they certainly know more than I do, uh, especially about sending a rocket to the moon. But uh, that is not true, and I'm going to explain why. It 
first of all, it pains me to debunk this myth because I like it so much. Uh, you know, I would love everybody to fill their homes with plants and, and, and enjoy the mental benefits of being around plants. And we'd, we should do a show just on that sometime. Uh, in fact, I think we kind of did with uh, Charlie Hall, Dr. Hall, a while back. Uh, but most of these claims reference that NASA study years ago that indicated some houseplants may remove a few volatile organic compounds such as benzene. However, as usual, the devil's always in the details. Most plants included in the NASA study had little to no effect on removing the handful of compounds that they studied, and they just studied a handful of compounds. And we have numerous potential pollutants in our air. Uh, in a small enclosed chamber, the presence of a few houseplants in that enclosed chamber made a positive impact on certain compounds, and, and plants differed in which ones they did a better job with, like benzene being an example. But interestingly enough, when they removed all of a plant's leaves before putting it in the chamber, they had the same result, indicating that it was the soil microbes in the pots that were in there that were accounting for mu much, if not most, of the benefits uh, from those, those plants. Uh, and so considering the thousands of cubic feet of airspace in your home, you know, the cubic feet is just, th there's a lot of air in your home. Any slight positive effect from a houseplant here or there is insignificant. You'd be better off bringing a few inches of soil teeming with microbes and spreading it all over the floor of the house. By the way, I didn't tell you to do this if your spouse gets upset. Uh, but uh, spread it over the floor of the house. All the microbes in that do have an effect, and, and it would have some effect. But even at that, uh, you think about, the air conditioning unit and air moving in and out and doors opening and closing and all of that and enjoy your house plants but don't count on them to uh, you know purify your air to an, a significant extent according to a, a guy named uh, John German he's a former senior science advisor at the US EPA indoor air division a 15,000, or excuse me, 1,500 square foot home would need 680 plants to accomplish the few selected benefits found in the NASA study. Now, if Tarzan lives there, he would certainly feel at home. Uh, but as you can see, uh, when you really look at the devil in the details, it's like, yeah, that makes great news, but come on, we have plenty of other reasons to have plants other than that. The same thing is, is similar with oxygen. The ability of a few plants to increase the oxygen levels in your home is really negligible. And again, the air is moving in and out of our homes. And I guess if you stayed cooped up in a glass room with plants around you so much that people couldn't hardly see you sitting in there, yeah, you're going to get an oxygen benefit to that. But that that's not real life uh, situation. So there are uh, many research studies pointing to the psychological and cognitive benefits of having plants around us. They beautify our homes, they give us a sense of well-being, and they're just flat, flat fun too. So lots of good reasons to have it. But next time you hear about that NASA study, just remember, yeah. All right, another myth. Planting hot peppers near mild peppers make the mild peppers hot. People swear by this one. I mean, I have heard it over and over again, but it isn't true. Peppers are primarily self-pollinated, although some cross-pollination can occur, but 
like a tomato, mostly uh, it's, it's self-pollinating. And even when it does, what is affected is the seed inside. So I guess what I'm saying is you got a hot jalapeno next to a sweet banana pepper, and there's not a lot of jalapeno pollen that's pollinating the banana pepper, especially since the plants tend to be a little bit apart anyway. Uh, but if it did, it would affect the seeds in that mild banana pepper. So when you took the seeds out of your mild banana pepper, you might have some seeds that have hot jalapeno in the lineage, and therefore the plants that you grow from those would produce fruit with some heat. Uh, so uh, that is that is how that works. There are a few examples of where cross-pollination affects fruit quality, and one of them would be sweet corn. Uh, sweet corn that's a super sweet corn that's planted with regular old field corn, uh, that cross-pollination of pollen actually affects the kernels in your super sweet corn, causing them to not be super sweet corn. Uh, that that is the one example I can think of that comes to mind right now of where having two plants next to each other affects the quality of their neighbor as opposed to uh, just changing the seed in the, for future generations. I wonder why this myth is so widely believed, and I can only think of three reasons. It may be that the plants the gardener purchased, say they bought a mild banana pepper, were actually a hot banana pepper. Uh, mislabeling is not all that uncommon. I mean, it can happen from the grower to the garden center to you on your way home. A label falls out and you stick it back in, a, in the wrong container or something. Uh, it may also be that in harvesting, the gardener got the fruit mixed up somewhere prior to eating it. Uh, and it also could be that someone you love and trust told you this myth, and now you are repeating it. That is a possibility. All right, well, let's talk about another myth. Uh, we're going to get to some gardening mistakes here in a little bit, but I think we got some more myths we can touch base on before we do. Compost tea suppresses diseases, provides nutrients, and reduces the amount of water that a plant needs. These are all things I've heard about compost tea, and we love compost. Compost, we got the idea of compost from nature, right? I mean, leaves fall on the forest floor. They get covered by more leaves. Over time, they decompose, and you come back decades later, and that forest environment is just rich uh, for growing plants, all because of decomposed organic matter uh, working its way down into the soil. So why wouldn't compost tea be a good thing? Well, a uh, number of reasons. One is compost tea does not equal compost tea uh, because compost does not equal compost. And here's what I mean. Uh, depending on the feedstocks that went into making compost. So did you make compost out of tree leaves or did you uh, make it out of chopped up wheat stalks or did you make it out of shredded bark uh, like it gets done a lot in large composting facilities. Uh, those are different stocks with different nutrient contents. How far did it compost? Did it is it just long enough to turn black and sell it, which unfortunately happens sometimes, uh, or did it fully go through that composting cycle? And in the process of going through the cycle, the actual cast of characters of microbes changes in the process. So you don't have the exact same numbers of a certain type of microbe all through that process. It, it changes. And so Compost doesn't equal compost, therefore compost tea doesn't equal compost tea. So making a statement that compost tea suppresses diseases, 
uh, is is too broad of a claim because when you look at the, the research on it, there are times when a research report comes out and says they used compost tea and they didn't have this particular disease as much on plants. There are other times when they say we tried compost tea and saw no measurable, no uh, significant uh, valid uh, suppression of disease. And the, I've already told you two reasons why that is probably the case. Why does it work for you and not work for you? Well, different diseases, different plants, and different compost tea. Uh, aerated compost tea is better than anaerobic compost tea, that's for sure. Now, the part about reducing the amount of water needed, I just, I can't even find a, a research paper that ever supported that. I, they, they, it may be out there, but uh, in general, it doesn't make scientific sense that that would be the case. Now, if you don't want to believe me, and I and I know some people probably are going, yeah, I don't, I just think it works, or I used it and it works, and so on. Well, compost tea has a little bit of nutrients in it, a little bit. And when you spray it on plants, we've already talked about foliar feeding, and it's way oversold, and only in a few situations, very specific situations, might it help something. Uh, so, uh, the the idea with disease suppression suppression is you're putting all these microbes on the leaf and making it an antagonistic surface for disease spores to land, establish, and infect the plant. There there can be truth to that, but it, innate in in practice it doesn't typically always work out. So rather than believe in me, how about we go to the Rodale Institute? research done there. Now, if anybody would be in favor of organic gardening, it certainly would be the Rodale Institute, right? Well, I'm going to read you two quotes uh, from the Rodale Institute about compost tea. Overall, the data underscore that from their trials, the data from their trials underscore how much remains to be learned about the on-farm use of compost tea, whether organic or conventional uh, farming systems. The widely divergent results in the three crops that they studied suggest that it is difficult, if not impossible, to generalize about the efficacy of compost tea for disease suppression across all crop species. The second statement, the researchers felt that the results did not warrant the work, the variables, and the risks of using compost tea relative to just using high-quality compost to create healthy soil and working on good organic crop management. There you have it. So again, go back to nature. Nature does not make compost tea and spray it on plants. Nature does make decomposed organic matter and put it on the soil. And nature was right about that one. So there's another myth <clears throat> that's uh, that I think you'll find uh, is uh, pretty common. You probably have heard it, and you may even believe it uh, or have believed it. And so another common myth I think that uh, uh, we need uh, to deal with. Uh, one other one other myth uh, is that fertilizing helps grow a lawn in the shade. So. This will be my last one, and I think we'll switch over and do a few uh, common landscaping or gardening mistakes. The, the idea is, you know, you've got this big live oak tree, let's say, and it just has leaves virtually all year round. And grass can't get light under there, and it starts to get thinner and thinner and thinner. If you go in with fertilizer, that will not replace light. It won't it doesn't make that plant start growing. You know, and, and this is a good point 
time to point something out. We refer to fertilizer as plant food, and I think it's more helpful to think that fertilizer are the components that the factory makes into plant food, meaning this. When nutrients, whether they're fertilizer applied or naturally occurring in the soil, when nutrients move up in the plant, the leaves are the factories that makes food for the plant. And it takes those nutrients, like raw materials, and it makes carbohydrates, which drive growth. It makes uh, plant there are plant hormones that are that are developed or uh, are, are fashioned, and there's a lot of different components that result in plant growth and plant health that are made in the plant. But the fertilizer isn't the plant food; it's the substance that plant food is is made with. Okay, and so the idea that you've got a plant, in this case a grass plant, and it's in the shade. And this uh, grass plant is not getting enough sunlight, so the factory can't run. The factory that produces carbohydrates, which support vigorous growth of the grass, therefore filling in and thick lawns and all of that, uh, without the light, the factory doesn't run. So throw in more nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium on the ground, in fact, actually can work uh, counter to what you're trying to do. Excessive nitrogen uh, may promote some top growth, but at the expense of root growth. Uh, but it also, if, if a plant gets a little light and is growing and you're overdoing the nitrogen for the amount of light it's getting, uh, you, you have more problems with diseases or certain, certain turf diseases that are definitely uh, correlated. Uh, an increase of the disease is correlates with excessive amounts of nitrogen. So Water's the same way. You can't water a shady spot and make the lawn thick there. Uh, now, so the best thing you can do is find a way to get light there. That would that would mean doing some tree trimming, which there's a caveat to that. Um, it would have to be redone regularly. Uh, you now have these nice, beautiful trees that you're chopping up to try to get light in for the grass. So I would say in those areas, uh, plant something else that, that loves the shade. If you've got St. Augustine and it's getting thin, that you've done all you can do if you want to have a lawn. If it, that doesn't work, you need to switch over to something else. All right, enough myths. Let's switch over now. And by the way, you're listening to Garden Success. We're normally a live call-in show. Uh, today, I'm uh, just talking about garden myths, and now we're going to have about 10 minutes worth of gardening mistakes uh, that hopefully these will help you avoid wasting your money and time and, and help you get better results in your gardening because the, the um, uh, Internet is full of misinformation. Uh, sometimes I watch even TV shows and, and occasionally hear radio shows and uh, where gardening advice is given out that is not applicable to our area or is just flat wrong uh, to begin with. And so you need to be a wise consumer because we want you to have the, the most success that we can. So... Number one gardening mistake on my list right now is purchasing plants before preparing the soil. That almost sounds like say that 10 times fast. Uh, we go to garden centers and we see these beautiful plants and the blooms on them and we envision what our place is going to look like with those plants. And that's great. Dreaming is a wonderful thing. But when you bring a plant back and plop it into an unprepared plot, there's I'm just adding to the peas in this one, uh, it is 
like the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Plants, jumps in their car, turns on the lights and siren, and heads for your house. That the plants will succeed and will become what you dream if you first prepare the soil. Put compost into the soil. Uh, build up a bed if drainage is at all in question. Uh, if you've got a heavy clay that is so sodium-laden it, its structure is ruined and you need to help it, then get some gypsum and work on that. And any other thing that you might do, uh, get it ready for the plants. And then when you drop them in, they hit the ground running and you get what you want. But we tend to do it the other way around. We tend to buy the plants and then walk around going, okay, now what am I going to do with these? So spend a dollar on your soil before you spend a dollar on your plants. That's another way to look at it. Uh, not building the soil with compost and building raised beds. Those are two more mistakes that we make. Uh, our heavy clay soils don't drain well typically and by adding composted organic matter we can improve that. Now if you add enough you can also add uh, expanded shale. This is a shale crumbly, kind of a kitty litter looking stuff that has been fired at super high temperatures and expands the clay, the shale particles so that now they're pitted. Uh, maybe a, a fairly close analogy would be like the lava rock on your barbecue pit that has all the pits and holes and everything in it. Uh, it, it improves that characteristic of it. And when used in significant quantities, and we're talking about like four inches on the ground, uh, rototilled in as deeply as you can, it can improve a clay soil. The advantage of the shale is the clay, uh, the, the shale lasts forever almost. It doesn't break down. Uh, with a compost, you're going to have to add it periodically. In a home garden, I add a little bit every year, uh, but in, when you get into a now established rose bed, uh, you're not going to pull up the roses and rototill the bed and put the roses back down again. And so that's where compost kind of starts to uh, not last as long. Uh, but uh, the chunkier stuff, the bed mix stuff, uh, it's not fine like uh, potting soil. It's kind of woody, chunky, composted material. Uh, that has a little bit longer life and, and would help. Another common mistake, not choosing adapted varieties and species. And I want to tell you, just because something is for sale in your area, and that applies to Bryan College Station, does not mean it should be planted here. Uh, I, uh, there is a big difference in, uh, well, let me, let me, how do I say this? Um, you need to know whether something will grow here before you buy it and bring it home. You can call the County AgriLife Extension Office. You can go to a very knowledgeable uh, nursery center where, where people, um, you know, place that's been in, in business for a while in the community and, and knows what they're talking about. Uh, but, or call us, like I said, at the Extension Office. Uh, you may have uh, grown up eating raspberries, black cap raspberries up in the Midwest or someplace, uh, and you'll find them for sale here. If you want to watch something die, you can actually pull up a lawn chair and they're going to die so fast you can watch them die right in front of your eyes. <laughs> Not quite that bad. But pick things that are adapted. When it comes to vegetables, you know, we're about to start, in fact we are, in our fall vegetable planting time where we're beginning with some of the warm season things. Well, if you're going to plant a tomato uh, for fall, number one, we're, we're past tomato time, but that's that's a July thing. But uh, you don't want to pick a brandy wine. It'll you'll never get fruit off of it. By the time it finally sets fruit, and you try to get them to maturity, it's cooling off. The plant is slowing down, 
and unless you like fried green tomatoes, you're not gonna you're not gonna have anything. Uh, so picking varieties that fit the area and that are adapted and that are disease resistant, uh, picking species, and that's true of woody ornamentals. Uh, I wonder how many. Uh, blue spruce trees have come back from a Colorado vacation to be killed in Brazos County. I bet a few. Uh, and also there are columbines from up there, same thing. We have native Texas and southwestern columbines that will grow here, and that's what we should be planting. So that's, that's the point. Uh, miswatering. And that's really about four or five different mistakes in one. But I'll just use the term miswatering. Miswatering might mean overwatering. Soggy wet soil conditions, very detrimental. Roots can't get oxygen. Plants struggle. Plants, uh, root rots can enter, and so on. Watering too little too often. We've been talking about that during this drought and heat. Uh, just a shallow watering barely wets the soil, and you think you're wetting it. And I've done this myself. I've sat there with a, a hose end sprayer or my thumb on the end of the hose and just watered and watered and watered a bed. And I mean, it's puddles everywhere, and it's running off everywhere. And then you go a little further and water it. Go back to that spot and dig down, and I bet you find the, the soil is wet a half inch down. Uh, you need to water slowly over time, but a good deep soaking on an infrequent basis uh, is the way you water. Watering foliage as opposed to soil. Drip irrigation waters the soil. Sprinklers wet the foliage. It runs off and it does get into the soil, but whatever's left on the foliage evaporates away. And whatever's left on the foliage increases those hours of leaf wetness that are part of the formula for when does disease occur. You know, you can take any particular disease and talk to one of our plant pathologists and they can tell you, well, at 75 degrees, at uh, this many hours of leaf wetness, that spore is going to germinate and, and grow. Uh, and so we can make that worse by the way we water. So miswatering, a big, big deal. Uh, planting sun lovers in shade and shade lovers in sun are trying to get a plant to grow where it doesn't want to grow. Uh, and that's just a, a factor. We have a lot of plants that can grow in the shade and do well. We have other plants that need full sun. And then we have plants that need sun, but they need a break. And understanding that and putting them where they go will give you much, much better results. I can... Uh, uh, I can give specific examples, but I'm going to just keep moving on this one because we've got a lot more things we can talk about here. Uh, not training your ornamental shrubs and trees when they're young. So uh, you plant a shade tree uh, in your landscape or a shrub, and you don't, from the beginning, make pruning cuts that are educated for a purpose. In other words, they are based on edu what education that you've learned and they're for a purpose. You know, they say people climb mountains sometimes just because they're there. Well, people prune trees just because they're there. And if you don't know what you're doing, you end up with a weak structure. And this, think about this, a tree is worth hundreds if not thousands of dollars over time uh, to the value of your home. So if you build a tree that has weak branch angles, and that is mispruned and likely to break off in a storm or something else. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And by the way, if you have a tree that was trained well and somebody comes along with a pickup and a chainsaw offering to prune it for you, they can leave you with something that can never be fixed if they don't know what they're doing. So uh, pruning 
when they're young. We call that training. Uh, is very important. It's also important for fruit trees. Uh, and sometimes the cuts you need to make will break your heart. Uh, it, it just you think this has got to be wrong, but it, it is what you do. And you need to learn about that. Uh, Aggie Horticulture has information on every fruit tree and how to prune it. Uh, they've got information on pruning and training shrubs. There's a lot of good research-based information online on that to teach you how to prune. Where do you make the cut? Everybody seems to want to leave stubs. Stubs die and prevent the wound from closing. Uh, sometimes people cut too close to the, where the branch attached, like a branch attaches to the trunk and they go right up against the trunk and make the cut. That's also bad. It makes a bigger wound and removes some of the tissues that help healing. So learning how to prune and pruning, uh, starting with training properly, but continuing through the life of the plant when pruning needs to be done with pruning it properly. I'm going to do another one here on pruning. Uh, pruning flowering plants, plants at the wrong time. So things that bloom in summer, like a oleander, for example, uh, and a vitex, uh, those are, are blooming on new, uh, they're producing buds on new growth to make the blooms for that summer. Things that bloom in the spring, those buds were formed in late summer and fall. So right now, we're seeing the fruit tree buds that for your peaches or your apples that are being set in the in the plant. Uh, and if you, uh, of course, this isn't an azalea area, but azaleas and spirea, uh, what else blooms in the spring? If you live up north, the forsythia is the big one. Uh, we don't we don't do that one here. Um, the flowering quince is another spring bloomer, and once blooming roses, roses that only bloom in the spring and then they don't bloom anymore. If you prune them in winter, you're cutting away your bloom buds. Uh, so what we do is we let them bloom and then we go in and do any pruning that we need to. So that's when we're not pruning in the winter. So knowing when to prune the plant is important, and that's a mistake uh, that people uh, can often make uh, as well. Perhaps sometime we'll do another show and just kind of continue with common gardening mistakes and help you avoid making them. Uh, they, they, what do we say? Learn from the mistakes of others. You don't have time to make them all yourself. I think that is probably good advice. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter, and we're here today by tape. But next week, we will be back live on Thursdays from 12 to 1. If you've got friends that are interested in gardening, uh, you might tell them about the show. We'd love to have them listen in. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arborgate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arborgate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. 
Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch Produce Market and Garden Center, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.